Hello, and welcome to episode six. Five, it's six, something. Something like that. Yeah, if we count your little uh, an episode, it's uh, episode five and six-ish, somewhere in there. So, it all depends on where you're starting from. But welcome to episode five, six-ish of Winter in Metal as we try to figure out our numbers. Math is hard, so at least when you're not keeping track. Anyways, so it, uh, I'm Adam Keeler. On the other side is the, the jazz man Tim Mirth with his nice seven string set in. What do you got that going with a doubling of uh, an octave lower? What do you mean an octave lower? Your guitar. Like, when you're playing it, I, I'm hearing a harmony. Oh, yes, there was an octave lower. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Just making sure my ears weren't uh, going that bad. I mean, I you were saying seven string, and I'm like, can I detune an octave lower? I don't think I can. Perhaps. Oh, is that your? I thought I counted seven on that. No, 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 it was a seven. Okay. Wow. (laughs) Maybe we should do these a little bit earlier when we focus. Uh, <laughs> We're off to the races, folks. Yeah, exactly. The good old the pre-gig prep. Speaking of which, I think that's our topic for tonight. Pre-gig prep. What do you do to get ready for a gig when you have them? Luckily, these days. So. <laughs> yeah, I guess the reason we're talking about that is I actually have a gig tomorrow night. Though it'll be tonight, I think, if we get this out on time. Um, yeah. With my one group, which is... So since the the COVID thing happened, prior to that, I would say like once a month or twice a month, I was usually, I usually had a gig for the last like forever. So this year, though, obviously everything slowed down and stopped. And I think I've, this will be my third gigish thing since March, um, which has been kind of weird. And I'm very out of practice for like doing a gig. Um, and this is all, this could be live stream kind of thing with my one group, um, Night Terrors, hence the um, seven string. So Night Terrors is a group that I have, um, I used to have sax, guitars, um, drums, um, sometimes violin, multiple saxes and stuff. This particular iteration is just going to be guitar, drums, gongs and stuff like that, but two people. Um it's a band though that there's really no like limitations. This is my like experiment band where we, we get to do all kinds of stuff. The nice thing though, is it's not like full avant-garde experiment. A lot of it is there's a lot of like through composed, really difficult pieces, uh, much of which I wrote and much of what Paul, the guy I'm, I'm playing with wrote, but then there's it's sort of like a juxtaposition between extremely composed and extremely improvised so it's great and, th- and there's really no rules in it and we're even doing it at a jazz club so it's, it's sort of like the spirit of like the free jazz thing uh, yes. explosion mark two yes. so spinal tap <laughs> so I, I actually so just to kind of this is a guitar um that i use for this group um primarily because of the source material which requires um, a seven string. So a lot of the, the songs written have seven string stuff in it. And uh, it's a Schechter Banshee seven string. 
It's actually a 26 and a half inch scale, so it's a little bit longer scale than most of my other guitars. Actually, all of my other guitars. So there's a little bit of like getting used to the guitar itself. Because I, even though it's it's actually, I was telling Adam earlier today, I'm like, it's a really great guitar. <laughs> um, it's funny because before this, I was I have a Carbon 7 string, um, which is a great guitar. But for this particular thing, this, this guitar just kicks its butt, really. Um, it's a little more... I think part of it is it's got the uh, a bolt-on neck, which I tend to like a little bit more anyway. They tend to be a little more snappy or responsive or something to it. The carbon, which is a neck through. So uh, here I am, like very unpracticed, doing a gig. So um, I had to. Uh, prior to this podcast, I've been setting everything up. I changed the strings, which I still have to cut these things off. Um, and then I, I, ha I actually bring the carbon as a backup too, for that matter. So I need to check that out. But then uh, what I'm going to do with the amps um, for this particular gig is kind of the first time I've tried something. So this, this is the nice thing about this gig is I'm always just trying new things. I'm like, oh, I have this idea. I should try it. Um, let me back up just a little, and I, I'm going to probably talk a lot. Um, we had a rehearsal the other day, and I took – I have a Line 6 Helix. And I was using it just for effects only. And I was really hoping to use – I was, or I was at least considering using it for everything, and just so it would just be a little bit easier. But it it started malfunctioning like when I was at rehearsal. Um, a lot of the buttons and stuff started going clear, and um, I don't know. I think it's gonna have to go get repaired or something. It, I got it to work when I did like a firmware update, and it refixed those issues. But I, after like five minutes after the firmware update, they disappeared again. And then I turned it off and restarted it again, and they came back, and they've been on for a day or so, but I, I just don't trust it. Oh, yeah, you can't have that. So uh, um, I'm going all pedals, which is fine. I actually think pedals sound better. They're just a little bit more of a pain. Mm -hmm. um, but it's kind of nice how you can, like, especially in this band where you can go and, like, mess with the knobs and stuff. So I had to decide. I'm, I'm looking back here, but I had to decide because it's sitting on the floor. I could probably show you. Look at this. The first movement of camera. Whoa. Uh, so <laughs> I, I have this pedal board down here. I'm trying to do this as best as I can. Yeah, no, I can um, see it. And, you know, kind of deciding which pedals to bring. You can even see, like, pedals I took off the board. Not someone that you built, right? The pedal board? Yeah, I, bet I built this pedal board. And uh, I'm actually doing kind of an interesting thing, too. So what I was saying was new is if you look on top of this speaker over here, there's like a black box. Mm -hmm. um, and that's an attenu attenuator. But I'm not, I'm not using attenuator. I actually hate the way attenuators sound in general. But what's nice about it is it has a line out. Just for clarity, why don't you uh, share? Yeah, what's what that? Just for clarity, why don't you share what an attenuator does? Oh, sure. And of course I'm getting noise. <laughs> Um, turn this off too. Look how prepared we are. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, an attenuator. So when you're using a tube amp, especially like a higher powered one, in this case, I ha I'm using a red plate, uh, magic dust, which is only 50 watt amp. The 50 watt tube amp is really loud. It can take the skin off of you. 
And then I'm actually using that, and I have a Fender um, Hot Rod Deluxe over here. <clears throat> then I'm going to use the second amp. And uh, anyway, the attenuator goes from, in this case, the red plate to the speaker. And normally what you would do with an attenuator is um, tube amps sound better when you crank them. But a lot of times we don't get the chance to, to go to that skin splitting little level. Um, so people use attenuators to basically like takes take some of the load off, but it lets the amp like warm up and use more power. <clears throat> and so you get the power tubes working, which gives you so you get you get a distortion and a gain from the preamp tubes, but you also get it from the power amp tubes if you turn up loud enough. So all that like classic like Hendrix and stuff like that, that's like all power amp or power tube um, distortion. Like you just crank the hell out of the amp and it it's this it's glorious right it's wonderful oh yeah that's that's half of the reason you want to plug into a marshall set yeah, so people so people will buy like plexis and stuff and they'll play it in their bedroom and they'll say man this thing doesn't sound that good <laughs> what is but it's like well, you really have to like turn them up yep saying all that i still like the sound of an amp a tube amp when it's not cranked better than I like the sound of a tube amp when you use an attenuator because the attenuator it tends to like chop off some of the top end and stuff and it, it's so it's like a fake sort of thing that happens and I, I don't know I never use it but I have one um, but I I've been thinking about how to why I wanted to use it for this which is I have no attenuation on at all there's no no attenuation um, it's turned off. So it does nothing. Like basically as far as an attenuator it does nothing. But one of the really nice things that this particular unit has is a line out. So what I'm doing is all the like pre, um, it's all like the wall. I have a ring modulator over here, a fuzz. I have this attack thing, the octave thing. I have a univ, uh, univibe kind of pedal and a couple gain pedals, um, King of Tone and a, a Maxon Super Distortion thing, um, which I'm actually not going to use a Super Distortion unless I have an issue with an amp or something. It's just there as a backup for distortion. But uh, that's all going straight into the red plate. And then what happens from there is I'm going to the attenuator and then one of the, the, the speak going straight to a speaker, which is fine. So the red plate just sounds like it normally does. But that um, line out is going to the delays and reverbs. And then, then those are going to the fender amp. So you're getting like the preamp of the red plate, but then um, the, the delays and stuff are going to the fender amp. And this is what you call a wet dry rig. So if you've ever heard that term before. I've done that before, and not with an attenuator, but with an actual splitter. I had like way back, you know, that had a Mesa dual rectifier, yeah, hundred watt, and uh, Thunder. Oh, what was it? It wasn't a Hot Rod Deluxe. It was like one of those chorus super chorus Thunder super chorus, yeah. Uh, and that was like my clean channel and clean thing, and then the Mesa was clearly the distorted one, and I split the signal uh, into both. It had like the delays on one side and the wah and the distortion and everything on the other. It's so really so. Actually, the, so in this case, the Fender gets all the wahs, gets everything. It's, oh, really? Because it's, it's and it's even getting the preamp from the red plate, right? 
<clears throat> so any distortion or anything will be if I don't turn the delay pedals on, it's basically running that into the fender amp as another amp. So I can I can turn all the delays off and it's not wet or anything at all. Okay. And it'll sound like the distortion and the gains and stuff will sound like the red plate on both amps. And <clears throat> so you get so the <laughs> the reason I do it is I despise the sound of using um, a uh, a loop, the 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 effects loop. It's oh yeah. Anything you put in the effects loop, it just takes away from the amp. It just you you could just run a wire, a short little wire from one end to the other, and it changes the way the amp sounds. It sucks. And and you could put a buffer or whatever, any of those kind of things. There's like nothing you can do to get away from that sound. At least I haven't had any luck. Um, and then even like, you know, you look at like the tone guru people and they're all like, they never do it. They, they hate it too. Like, I don't think I'm alone. I've never been able to get it to work. You, you like, and I can always tell like when people do it too, like when I hear, which is basically everybody, um, you can just tell. So the, one of the other options you can, is you can put the delays into the front of the amp, which is fine actually if you use pedals for distortion. So if you use pedals for distortion, just go straight into the front of the amp and it sounds great. But I find when you put the, if you use the distortion from the amp at all, then um, it doesn't sound good. You think that's because the delays just kind of um, degrade the signal a little bit? Like there is, there isn't yeah, a- Once it goes, yeah, for sure. Yeah, and the, now, there are some awesome, like, I mean, the old days, that's what everybody did. There was no effects loops. Yep. And yep. no one was doing, like, wet dry rigs or whatever. They were running the Echoplex right into the front of the amp. Mm. You know? And that's part of that sound. So you, you, there's certain things you can do, and it sounds great. Um, other things just don't sound as good. I'm also a little bit weird about delays in general. Like, um, I they tend to get in the way, and they kind of annoy me. I like them as special effects, but the sort of, like... Um, I'm going to use, here's my solo sound and I'm going to put a delay on it and it's just always on and it never changes or something. I, I always feel like it gets in the way. Um, this is it. The timing's just little... not right or something or like, it just annoys me. Yeah. The timing is the first thing. That's the first thing that I noticed, you know, when I, I'm tracking for like, uh, this project that I'm working on that I love the delays, but getting them to, even with like a tap tempo thing, it just yeah. doesn't. It doesn't work that well, and I used to love delays. I played with them all the time, and now maybe it's because I have a lot more uh, training than I did. I'm much more sensitive to like the timing of it and, and going like, yeah, nope, nope, that's just not it. And, no, so when I when I record when I record something, I always record it dry, and then you add the delays later. There's a lot of reasons why that's why you should do that, um, hmm. but. The nice thing is it's really easy to sync it with the time then. That's yeah. one thing, right? So as long as you had your as long as you set your tempo when you started the song, you can set easily set your, you know, plug in delay to the right time. The other problem is you can't erase a delay. Like so say you record it mm -hmm. with a delay on it, you can't get rid of it. It's just there. So you yeah. don't have any control over it. That's that's called um that's called printing effects. So if you ever heard like People say, oh, yeah, you printed the effects when you recorded. That means that you 
had all your delays and all that stuff in the recording. So you can't get rid of it. It's just there. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's better to, to actually record dry. And then now certain effects like ring modulators and stuff, you'd, you'd, you would record that probably. But uh, you can't fix it after the fact. But there's probably reasons why you like that quality to be a little bit more loose. But like delays in particular, like not to have the timing right is, anno- is annoying. <laughs> Totally. I mean, when I'm doing like for tracking this the project that I'm just talking about, I have a signal going in that I'm using the the diesel plugin because I absolutely love it, and that's one track. I have a completely dry signal as the other track, and then um, I have a, a third signal of good God, I, why am I drawing a blank? A third signal of oh, uh, a direct plugin so I can hear it back from like the Pliny plugin. It's like, I got all three tracks recording at the same time because the guy that I'm going to send it to, it's like, this is what I like to hear when I'm tracking. Here's something completely dry. So you can do whatever the hell you want with it. And here's an effect that I really, really like, you know, and let the composer kind of pick whatever he wants and and plug it into track just to give him the variability and myself that variability. So it makes editing it, a hell of a lot of more work when you're dealing with three tracks versus one. I mean, you can group them, but it's just a matter of the visuals. It's like, it's nice to just have one track and go click, click. There it is. Yeah, sure. <laughs> anyway. So in terms of the, your gig prog with that, clearly like that's totally different than what I would do for a gig thing. And I don't need to talk about that, but um, in terms of like, yeah, outside of like the getting the effects things right because of the, the issue with the helix, that's kind of like a modern day problem with effects. I remember watching an interview with Devin Townsend where he had two axe effects uh, that he would have and, and, and an AB switch like on stage with him so that if yeah. one of them crapped out, he'd go click and it would switch to the backup, you know, and then that he just had the two. So, um, you know, redundancy is generally the sol- solver of most of the issues that will happen. But you know, it, it, half of me is like, just two? One, why not three? Because if two crap out, you know, you got a problem. Yeah, of course, at that point, you know, the, the, the chances of two of them dying is well. I, I suspect there's always a backline. Like, yeah, even in Devin's case, like if they had to, there's in that building, there's a dual rectifier or something. Yeah, he would have to. And he's probably had to do that before. You know what I mean? Yeah, like, well, and that's the reason why we have these types of setups. Why do you have so many things and how much backup? Because something has happened once that I don't want to happen again. Oh, man. so That, that reminds me of a story. Um, There's a a band I had, um, Paul Stranahan's Insomnia, that I was playing with. We had a CD release party, you know, and it was well-attended kind of thing, too. Um. And for whatever reason, I decided I, I like I never break strings or anything, right? Like it <laughs> never happens. And there was There's- one guitar I was using like all the time it was a GNL. Actually, you can kind of see it back there. GNL Legacy for that particular group was just like a Strat. And uh, I'm like, you know what? I'm not gonna carry all this crap. The place we were playing at. You have to like climb up these stairs and like do all this stuff. And it's like all oh, the gear. And I'm like, you know what? I'm not going to bring two guitars. Screw that. <laughs> I remember we were about like ready to start. And the way it starts, it's like, I don't know if you can hear that, but yeah. 
So it was like, and then the string, the D string broke. First song, like, it was like, we were doing these, like, like, and the drums were going crazy and everything, you know, like, to kind of, like, let it play off this melody or whatever. I just remember. And so I, uh, I'm like, crap. So the song just keeps going. They don't stop. On the, <clears> even though it was the third note, it's like or the fourth note or something. Dee doo down. Um. So then I, I go and look at my gig bag, and it was the D string of all things that broke, and I didn't have a D string. Um. <laughs> so I grabbed a, and so it, it's a floating bridge. Oh no! And uh, so all I could find was like a G string. And you tune it down? So, yeah, I took the G string and put it on there, and it was really floppy. And it was a plain G, you know, so it wasn't like a thick string. <laughs> and it, so then I had, like, you can't just tune up to the pitch. That'd be great. You know, if I had, like, this guitar, that would have been yeah, fine. But with the floating bridge, all the other strings got all out of, all out of whack. Mm-hmm. And uh, I had to, like, retune the whole guitar as it was, like, adjusting and... Anyway, so I always bring two guitars. Yeah, I had that happen to me on my, like, a, uh, I want to call it, like, one of my bigger gigs. And I, I came out to Baltimore to do a show, and I just had my tailor. That's it, you know, and I walked out on stage, and it, there was a good amount of people there. And I'm like, this is great, you know, I'm, I'm the, I don't want to say, like, I'm the star, but I was at, the, at that thing, you know, it's yeah. like, the, don't fly you out because they you, they think you suck. So um, so I got out there and I had my tailor and I had new strings on it and I was good to go. And first song, I break the D string. Like, and this is a solo acoustic show, so it's not like I can like do anything about it. It's like, yeah. okay, I'll be right back. Give me a second. And like, it was the fastest string change that I've ever did. Next song, I broke the low E, which never happens. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Yeah, it's like really. Yeah, you can. And then I broke the A one time in thirty years, right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And then I think I broke the A string. I broke three strong strings in that gig on one guitar, and you know, at the time my style was all altered tuning, so I was constantly retuning it. But I designed my set to avoid like you know going taking the G string, going down to an E, and then bringing it back up to an A. You know, so I, it wasn't like bending a lot. I the set was designed around tuning stability and not breaking strings. And I had extra strings, but breaking all those strings, I lost the audience by like the fifth song because they're like, what the heck is going on with this guy? Strings are popping and everything, you know, I'm bleeding from my face, not really with the bleeding, but you know, it's just like, it was, the gig performance wise was fine, but I'd lost the audience so quick with the rest of it. It was just like, oh, I didn't get invited back. So (laughs) whatever, it's just a part of it. You learn the hard way. After that, I came back and that's when I bought the a second guitar set to solve that problem. It's like, you know what? I can't drop as much as I did on my tailor, but I can get something else as a backup and have it up on stage. So if something goes, grab it, you know, and that's generally my, even with a classical gig, like I don't think I've broken, (laughs) knock on wood, a classical string during an actual performance. But I always have, I bring both guitars, you know, it's like just in case, because a classical string is going to settle. And uh, Jason Vio had that happen, actually. That's when he won the GFA, is he broke his low E string. No. Like in the finals, yep. 
walked off stage and put it back, put another one on, came back out. It was probably like an old one, you know, so it was already broken and did, and came out and won it. So kudos to him. Um, but uh, that's uh, at least that's the story that I heard. So breaking a string is the worst, especially. And that's something that everybody that's a rite of passage for every oh, guitar. Yeah. Like it, it I mean, doesn't matter. I have no illusions that it won't happen again. Like yep. in an inopportune time, you know? Mm-hmm. And that's why, like, it, just to kind of bounce it back to get it for your gig prep, you know, you had the Helix, it was working fine, the rehearsal didn't go well, you're a couple of days outside of the gig, and it's mostly functioning, like it's gone 24 plus hours, and it's fine. But as somebody with an experience, uh, with experience uh, performing, you go, yeah, that's not enough. You know, I needed well, to... I'm also fortunate enough to have pedals. Yeah. And I hadn't totally decided not to use pedals but yeah you're i mean you're at the same time it's like that was enough to be like nope yep exactly and that's basically what we do is the the we try to make sure that it goes off without a hitch you know it's uh this is kind of i'm pretty sure we're speaking to the people that play out and everything else but to the ones that don't the amount of work that goes beforehand that you know, you walk into your first, I remember my first gig distinctly, you know, it was this coffee shop in Buffalo called Stimulants. And I got the call, you know, I thought it was the, the greatest thing. And it, it kind of was, you know, it started down the, the path of what I'm doing or encouraged me in that because I got a call for a gig. Yay. After doing this open mic for weeks and weeks, uh, I finally have a full thing. And, you know, I just walked in there with my guitar and my looper that I had. The God, I can't remember what it was, but anyways, uh, it was like that, but it was like the the high end thing. Um, yeah. I, it was the same one that Phil Kagi was using. I can't remember the name of the, the stupid device. What jam Man. Yeah, Jam Man. That's what it was. It was a Jam Man. You know, and it was a rack on unit with a full footboard thing. You know, it was like super expensive for the time. I think he only got like 60 seconds of a loop going. Um, anyways, so, you know, I did that, and that was like amazing the place was packed it was so cool and then i got another gig at the same spot you know a couple of months later and it was like empty you know and i just it was a hard lesson to learn it's like wait oh yeah all my friends showed up to see me play and they don't necessarily need to see it again like i don't begrudge them it's just like you know, oh man gig, gig uh what's the right word it's not karma the gig gods are very complex. Yes, yes, they are. I like, mean, like, have you had this where it's like you play a Wednesday night with your group somewhere, you know, like a Wednesday night, like in February, you know, Wednesday night, February. Um, it's packed. Like, great. The audience is awesome. The, the venue's happy. You're happy. You have a great show. It's so awesome. So they're like, you know what? How about in May you guys do Friday night? You know? It's like yeah, Friday night. Yeah. Like, yep. That'd be awesome. You know, like, yeah, I mean, yeah, Friday night. We'll maybe even get paid more or whatever, you know? Um, we even expect more people. And then you do that and, like, three people show up. <laughs> yep. yep. And you're like, and it was like, maybe it was even, like, an ideal weekend or whatever, you know? And mm-hmm. it, you can never quite judge those things. Like you, yeah. it, it's never, um, it just never seems to make any sense. I mean, there's clearly a level of reputation that gets you to a point where there's a reliable crowd. And I'm not saying like, well, it, I don't know. You think? I think so. It's like, well, there's I mean, certain... maybe if you're like really big, but yeah. Well, by really big, I'm, I'm talking like, you know, um, 
I don't know. Well, really big in a uh, who would we consider really big on a local level here? Oh, there's a few. Like, like I would throw Dan Wilson and yeah, Sarah. Wilson, Theron, those guys. They, they, they got a consistent draw. You know, they got a great reputation. So when they do a show, there's going to be a good amount of people there. You know, and um, I think for the most part, I mean, and not to. I've definitely been at shows where those maybe they weren't the headline, but they were there or they were playing in where you know, it's only like a few people. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, that's what I meant. I meant as a headliner, not yeah, as like. It's kind of interesting to think about. I guess it depends too. Like the, the problem with local gigs is like how many are you doing within mm-hmm. a certain fr- time over frame? That great. Yeah, you can really? be like, I'm playing here in Akron tonight, and then tomorrow I'm playing this place, and then tomorrow in the next place I'm playing. You know, I have five yeah, gigs in a row in Akron. Nobody's gonna see you five times in a row unless they're stalking you or they're married to you. Yeah, well, actually, I agree. No. Though I mean, if you get a certain level of bigness, you don't need everybody to show up. You need mm-hmm. them to show up to every twentieth gig because mm-hmm. you have two thousand people that will come to see you in some way, you know, or something. Yeah, well, it's like if you have two thousand loyal fans and the place that you're playing at fits a hundred, you need like five percent to show up. Yeah. Which is somewhat reasonable. It's usually around one percent, but five percent. The, the I think the bigger that you are, the chances of the, hitting that five percent uh, is more prevalent. Yeah, uh, I only say because it's kind of funny. I, I've I've seen some of the biggest names in jazz, um, you know, that ever lived, like legends, play to like five people in New York City, you know. <laughs> well, I was like one of like a hand, like me, the bartender, and like one other person, you know. And they were like, <laughs> I, I'm gonna not name names now, but I've seen that quite a few times. And you're just like, how how is this even possible? Man, familiarity breeds contempt. And it you was know, their groups too. You know, it wasn't like yeah. um, they were just sitting in with somebody or whatever a side side gig. Like I went there to go see them. And then I was like, I mean, like, how is this even possible? Like, this is the, this is the pinnacle. This is like a living legend who will be honored forever and be in like museums <laughs> and stuff. And there's five people here. So Jeez. I think that happens. But then, it's funny because another night you'll see them play somewhere and there'll be a thousand people. So yeah. um, it's kind of, I don't know how to weigh all that. That's yeah, I, I brought, like one of the things is uh, my students will ask me, it's like, well, isn't playing in front of a thousand people intimidating? It's like, no, actually, I prefer like I would prefer I prefer that to happen a lot more common for several reasons. But just from a performance aspect, like playing to five people is a lot more intimidating than playing oh, to sure. it. It's it's just a matter of like, because it's so small, you're. I don't know. It just—it's like just because there's a, such a closer relationship to the audience versus a thousand people, it's just like this maskless thing of all these people just there. Like, okay, yeah, whatever. And nothing like it, the intimidation factor isn't there. But if five people are there, you can notice the reactions a heck of a lot easier. Yeah, like a heck of a lot easier. So it's uh, you know, if somebody's not interested, it's like God, I just lost twenty five percent of my audience. <laughs> <laughs> but you wouldn't notice that in a thousand if uh, two people were just kind of looking at their phones or whatever. I, I don't uh, think there's much more depressing in a lot of ways than like um, coffee shop gigs sometimes. Oh yeah, man, I, totally. I know you got to go with the, like the frame of mind that like no one really cares and you can just kind of play. Mm-hmm. But uh, 
like when no one actually cares <laughs> you're like i've been pra- i've been practicing for 30 years for no one to care at all that is yep. that hurts okay. that is definitely it's a sting to the ego but it's a, i think it's a good reality check you know so we don't get I too guess, uh, in, enjoying the smell of our own farts or something it's just like yeah you know some people just aren't going to care and that's okay. But, and half of the time we're, we, we, you'd love to get recognized, but half of the time you're not doing it for that. You're just doing it to get your stuff out there. Um, and, uh, like my thing, like I know now that when I do performances, I don't do them in the typical classical recital way. Like I, I break a lot of faux pas. I tell stories. I interact with the audience. I go through like, so the program might be like an hour's worth of music, but it usually lasts like an hour and a half of the concert. Cause I'm just sick of the whole, you know, sit down, shut up and just pay oh, attention. Sure. Uh, but that, I don't uh, think people, I mean, unless you have an audience of music people, which that's a whole and other not thing. Exactly why? Yeah, exactly. Then you, they don't know, and like, why make somebody feel uncomfortable that they clapped? Yeah. You know, when you just it's did so, something pretty cool. Yeah, exactly. I did like when I did the last the uh, show at Kenyon. Like it was two years ago. Oh, now the 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 fall before COVID, uh, I did a, a concert at Kenyon, like my debut concert as a uh, um, teaching there, and uh, you know. I showed up and it's a decent sized hall and it was a lot more packed than I expected it to be. Like I expected my studio to be there, like my students, yeah. um, you know, I'm like, it would be in, to your advantage to be there. <laughs> they drop the, uh, the line is the, the teacher getting a crowd, you know, uh, that whole eight people that showed up <laughs> from my students. But right. it was actually like, there was probably 50 people there, which was like, no, oh, this is pretty good for a college on a Friday night. Yeah, really. Come hear classical guitar. <laughs> okay. And, like it was funny because I'm like, you know what? I'm not going to do the whole walk out on the stage thing. I'm just going to sit on the stage as people come in and just talk to them and whatever. So uh, this is exactly what I did. Just kind of like sitting here like this, my legs crossed, a guitar there. I'm in tune. People would just walk in and have a seat and they're kind of like looking at me funny. I'm like, it's okay. I, I mean to be here, you know, how you doing? Blah, blah, blah. We're going to do this. And so I went through like the whole program kind of interacting. It was a heck of a lot of fun because I think that same thing that you're saying in some of the classical environments, it's just way too intimidating for an audience that's not a niche. And I didn't want to do that. It's like, let's just have a good time and hopefully I play well. You know, though I, I honestly, I did, I was really happy with how I played that night. Um, the, uh, so I liked doing that type of thing and that's been my shtick ever since. You know, it's like, go in, have a good time. Though I had like one gig in March that was a house concert that I did. And it was supposed to be just a half hour quick thing. Ended up taking a full hour just because of, I like to ramble, but they loved it, you know, and they, they, sure. they uh, I, I, we agreed on one place the price for a half hour and they paid me double because it was an hour. I'm like, well, you, you don't have to do this. We literally signed a contract that said this. They're like, no, no, you did the extra thing. It was great. And I'm like, all right, if you're happy, I'm happy. Yeah. I only turned on extra money once <laughs> and then that's it, you know? Um, so it's, uh, that was it. Uh, the last thing that I did, but to, to circle back to the uh, gig prep for yourself in with the night terrors thing. Um, so you have like all the amps set up, you get to your guitar restrung. Yeah. How many times did you rehearse? Like what was your rehearsing goal? We only rehearsed once. I mean, one thing is Paul and I have played together for over 10 years. So even when we haven't played together for months, 
we've just we've done hundreds of gigs together at this point mm -hmm. um and recordings and stuff we pretty like intuitive with each other and a lot of the materials memorized even if i haven't played it forever <laughs> it's, yeah, yeah it's kind of interesting to sort of it's more like dusting the cobwebs off to make sure it's good <clears throat> uh, but a lot of the you know a lot of the material is pretty tricky so i do have to go over it um a couple times to not totally screw it up so our rehearsals tend to be um we'll come up with a, a set list so like i said with this particular group it's like a lot of half of it's like really through composed very specific and then half of it's improvised um when we rehearse we don't spend as much time on the improv though we kind of do it just to get like um make sure our levels are good and like kind of figure out um other little nuances and, and it's just fun but then um we'll play through parts and then if there's something that didn't work out very well we'll go over it a few times um and there's all it's funny because almost always the same parts that we struggle or mostly i struggle with um, <laughs> because the they're just tricky and there's a couple of them that it's like if you get off just a little bit like the whole thing falls apart oh, yeah. it's really yeah. hard to like we're getting better at if you miss it you can you can get back on board but a lot of it's like really weird time signature stuff and and they're not like it's not like you drop one beat like a big beat like it might be like a 16th note you know or something and now the whole thing shifted you know just enough that it's not in alignment and then if somebody tries to compensate for it but the other person doesn't or the other person does compensate too then you like you switch both sides you know you end up on both sides oh, yeah, of each other. Totally. Um, circling each other so some of it, you just can't mess up on basically mm -hmm. i mean i don't know if people notice it or not when they hear us play but we we notice it um you know and a lot of, a lot of the pieces well like this particular one we picked up a few pieces that we hadn't done for a while too like i there's a song for the band red side visible that i had that's the if the gods allow which hey, is string um, the string tapping thing right and Paul and I came up with a Night Terrors version of it where we have like some improv and then we like change the tempo a few times and stuff. So we make it a little bit um, trickier. It's it's more like we more playful in a way because in the, the original version, it's very like steady the whole time. But here we'll have like, uh, I wonder if I could play a little bit of it. And turn it up to 11. <laughs> With distortion and all kinds of stuff, and then it. Um... This kind of thing, but we'll do uh, kind of like a. And then we'll improvise back and forth. He'll do a group of four notes, and then I'll or four beats, and then I'll do three beats. Then he'll do four beats, then I'll do three beats. And then okay. we'll do it again, and then I'll do four beats, and then he'll do three beats, and then we do these kind of little, like, 
um, things that we haven't played that song in a while, so we kind of had to get that under our fingers. Um, and then uh, there's another song from Red Side Visible that we kind of do. Um... Oh, yeah, we did that when we did our little duo thing. Maybe, yeah, did we? Yeah, yep. that, that's called W2F, which is actually, that's a 12-tone line. <laughs> So we have a, a Night Terrors version of that, but we took there's a there's like a bridge section, and it, the written version uh, it's just eighth notes and sixteenth uh, notes. But then in the version we do, we'll do like um, quintuplet sort of thing with it. <laughs> and so the time. Oh, because, why not? <laughs> so that there's, there's a riff in it that goes. Um, it's in tw- twenty nine sixteen. Of course. Because you gotta But then um the way the, the way the original song ends with is just with that and that timing. But the way we do it in Night Terrors is we <laughs> we go from what would be a sixteenth note to the quintuplet speed up an octave and then up again the quintuplet speed. I think you told me about this before, but keep yeah. going. Yeah. So I don't know if I can pull it up. <laughs> yeah. So you do each one four times. And then it, it'll go up an octave. And then it, eventually it's... Anyway, you got to get that under your fingers. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> um, and it's cool because it ends like we all now at this point, we kind of end and it's really tight, you know, um, <clears throat> as long as I work it up or whatever. So there's there's those like little like things like that that you have to kind of like work out. Yeah. And that, uh, just on a quick side note uh, with that, I think that's the one thing that people uh, non gigging musicians, let me rephrase it that way, like don't see the work that goes into pulling something like that off at all. Oh, yeah. like, I remember watching a, a, an interview with Steve Vai, just because he's Steve Vai and you watch interviews when he talks, the man's, <laughs> it's him. But he was like, oh yeah, when I was doing the song Building the Church, you know, which starts with another, strangely enough, and maybe it's because you were doing that, but a two-hand tapping thing. He's like, oh yeah, I had to like prop up pillows to be able to practice this for like five hours just to be able to kind of get this lick going. And it was like, it, it, it just reinforces like, oh yeah, this guy, just because he's not at the, just because he's at the pinnacle doesn't mean that he's not working on it constantly. Oh, like yeah, sure. constantly playing, constantly practicing, constantly working. It's the only way to keep the chops up. Um, you know, just like hit it and be like, oh, I'm just going to go in and just kind of nail this on a one-off. You know, if they, if they, if, if the musicians of that level release their takes, we all get a breath of, oh, they're human type of thing, you know? <laughs> Extent all the square tracks, as I call it, uh, of them screwing up and again, you know, <laughs> and doing it again because it's just part of it, and that uh, goes in with the rehearsals and everything else. So you've had the music, and in this regard, I think that's where like the cro- classical field and everybody else is, uh, crosses over is that there's the music that you're practicing by yourself, and that's just what you got to do to keep it up to get there so that when you get to the rehearsal it's a rehearsal and not a practice session like you're running the songs mostly yeah you're just getting in tune with each other to get it kind of nailed and that's one of those things that you know i think some 
musicians don't they th- confuse rehearsal with practice. It's like, no, rehearsal is when you show up after you practice and you get everybody and you're going through it end to end. You're not trying to figure it out on the fly. Um, And it's this thing that I think most amateur musicians get experienced to once. Like you learn that lesson pretty quick. If you walk into another room of experienced musician, expect to practice with them on that spot. It's like, oh no, you got to come with your crap together. Uh, Keep it kid friendly there. Um, And if there's a mentoring attitude of the rehearsal group, it's great because it's very encouraging. You know, they'll, they'll definitely twap you and be like, what the hell? Yeah. Get your crap together and come back with the practice. But they'll respect you when you actually do that the next time, you know, because it shows that you actually give a damn uh, to, to do that much. Um, I remember that was like one of the things that when Steve was teaching, he never let us do duos with other guitar players. It was always, if you're going to do something duos, it was, I mean, there was an occasional one, but you know, most of it was chamber music. You're getting a flute player, you're getting this and get that. And so you had to, it was great because it puts you in a mindset of like, I don't want to embarrass myself as a guitar player with this other person and not be able to play it. So you generally got it together. I remember I did one duo with a buddy of mine at the time, uh, and we did like some, some Mozart arrangements and I kept screwing up this like section because it was always coming in wrong on the 16th note. And it would, it, I had to come in on the E of the beat rather than the downbeat. And he just kind of looked at me like, dude, what the F? Like you, we've had this music for months and you're doing this now. Uh, sorry. And then, you know, but it getting like hit like that, I went home, set up a metronome n- gnome, and drilled that part again and again and again so the next time that i got together he was like all right we're good you know that's what we're and then we when we played it in the class for the coaching he's just like i just got to point something out that after i yelled at him for not getting the part he came back the next the next day and nailed it every single time you know and that's uh but i'm just saying that not to toot my own horn but to talk about like how we rehearse and practice you know i think if uh um I was just talking with another musician friend of mine. It's like, I love to work in an environment where you can be completely honest about how much the other person sucks <laughs> or, or sucking it at that particular time. Like not that they're a bad player, but if there's not a level of communication on the level of where you're playing is and what the music is demanding, you're never going to get better. Sure. You're never going to get to the next thing. So you have to have some of an ego to be confident enough that you can do the thing. Like you have to believe that you can do it. And then you have enough uh, hum- right humility of going, all right, I need to work on this. You know, and, 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 yeah, I call on the carpet, son, get it together, come back next week. And the pros do exactly that because everybody does that. Like it doesn't matter how good you are. You're going to screw up. You're going to have something that's just you learned it wrong, but it sounds OK. So you think that it's fine. So you need to, but then you show up and like, once you get in the context of the other musicians, it's like, oh crap, you know, so you got to go back and you got to fix it. And and that's part of it. And not to, it's, it's just part of the growing thing. And it's great. You know, you learn to love it. You learn to, you, you well, you either learn to love it or you quit. <laughs> I find it's kind of interesting. You were saying that it reminded me of, so in my, my world, I guess, where there's a lot of improvisation, sometimes you have to weigh the um, abilities of people to be well rehearsed versus how good of an improviser they are. So as we know, a lot of classical players are horrible improvisers. (laughs) Um, Same, same with any genre of music, really. Um, And actually, even just because you play jazz, jazz type stuff or jazz influence thing, doesn't mean you're a good improviser either. 
Um, so then, um, do you take the person who just blows you away with the way they improvise, but they're kind of like half <laughs> good on the, the worked up stuff um, versus the person who nails all the worked up stuff, but like their improvisation sort of leave you uh, hanging or whatever. So it's interesting because there's such a, I don't want to say they're diverse skill sets, but there's a lot of, like you can't just improvise because you want to. Like you can't just be like, oh, I'll improvise now. Like you kind of have, you have to work on that too. It's like another thing um, to work on all the time. And then, gosh, not to get too deep into the, like what is real improvisation sort of thing, but that's a whole other thing. There's just like, like sort of like what I call like true improvisers, the people that can go anywhere with anything at any time. Um, like Keith that, Jarrett. Yeah, like Keith Jarrett, right? Like who could take Bach and start improvising. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? <laughs> Just being in the moment and taking that thing and, and, and understanding it enough and feeling it enough and loving it enough to like work with it and just play with it um, in a sense and see what you could make out of something like it, you know, um, as opposed to just like having licks, you're like, Oh, I'm going to put this bebop lick on top of the Bach thing. Um, <laughs> I've seen stuff like that. It doesn't, doesn't work well. <laughs> I mean, it might be okay, but it doesn't feel as genuine in a way or something. I don't know. I'm probably going to bury myself in a hole by saying some of this stuff, but it is what well, it is. That's what it is. That's how I, I guess how I think about it. And, and I, I guess I've noticed too, like there's some people that are more natural with improvisation. Like the one who goes to the piano and just starts making music, even if they don't know the names, of the notes or anything, um, you, you meet kids like that. Yep. But then you meet kids who won't touch the piano unless you tell them what keys to push. Um, because they don't, they're afraid to make a bad sound or something. Um, so you, you have these different personalities you have to kind of deal with on that front, but it's interesting. You were, you were mentioning earlier, like, so how do you prep for a gig? Um, so this band's pretty unique. In yeah. yeah. A, a big part of this is like, I want to make sure that I have pedals and stuff that, come up with inspiring weird sounds that I can do something with. I could do the gig without any pedals and it would be fine. Um, and I don't need them, but they're more there for like little inspirational things. Um, but that that's different a bit than like a jazz, like a real, like a, let's say a real jazz gig or something where there's really no pedals, um, you know, or anything like that. It's, I, I want to get a good sound and sort of preparing for that. And I feel like that's a, that's a whole nother frame of mind. That really is the like, um, you know, of course you have to have all the like music itself down, but a big part of that world is that sort of like improv, true improv sort of thing. So where, where in Night Terrors, there's like really specific arrangements of how you would tackle a song. When I say, oh, I'm going to play this piece for jazz, I don't necessarily know how it's going to go. 
Like I don't say, oh, I'm going to use this voicing or this voicing or this voicing. I just say, okay, I know that's an A flat major seventh in that spot that goes with that melody. Mm-hmm. And um, and I, even like the location of the melody, I don't really like learn it um, like in one position or something. Um, it could be anywhere. Mm-hmm. There's a little bit of like, oh, I've never played it from here. Let me just see what happens and yeah. what I can come up with um, sort of on the spot. I mean, the more fast and crazy the the melody is or something, the more you have to sort of have a, some plan in, in action. But if it's a slower melody or, or something, um, it's very much um, – it's an improvised performance. I mean, mm-hmm. where you're playing the chords, how what what – how you're doing it, what, what, um, voicings you're using and stuff. It's, it's improvised. So a lot of that for me is, is knowing what tunes I'm going to do and just getting those kind of things under my fingers. Like, um, if I know it's an E flat minor seven, um, or E minor, E flat minor seven flat five chord. Like I just want to know, like in my head, I want to be able to see all the ways to play that all over the, the fretboard for that, just for that little moment. I just get that under my hands and then I want to be able to, to take that part of the melody and just kind of play with it anywhere. And the same thing with the next part of the melody. So it's all this like prep work so that when I do it live that I'm not thinking about it as much, mm-hmm. and I'm just grabbing it. I think that's something that's Jack uh, Chance pushed onto me when I was in school. Like I wasn't in the jazz field, but I, did, I needed an independent study. So I decided to take lessons with Jack on improvising, you know, him being the trump- trumpet player. And uh, because I wanted to go into it, not thinking in guitar terms, sure. like I wanted to think in the, the trumpet terms and music terms, I guess would be the, the better way to put it. Um, and that was brilliant. You know, it really kind of like, it, it pushed me way out of where I was. And one of the, th- all that to say that one of the things that he said, he's like, you start out with improvising where it's all in your head. Like it's all intellectual and you're, you're doing the work and you're, then you put the physicality into that in the sense of being like, okay, so this is this shape or whatever in whatever position, this is this voicing, this is this voicing, this is this voicing. And you kind of drill that so that eventually the, the head and the hands aren't separated and you're not even thinking about it anymore. It just becomes, oh, there it is. Uh, and that's where the practice comes in with that. And that's basically it, literally the process that you described of, okay, finding this voicing in every possible way, playing the melody and all the octaves and so on. That's literally what I take like beginning jazz students of mine. Like that's what I teach a whole lot of jazz, but if they're interested in jazz improv, that's exactly what I do. They, and I hear, hear a whole lot of autumn leaves because I push them into that particular tune um, in C minor, uh, just to cut, because you got to, if you're playing you bonus points there for that one. <laughs> in C minor, <laughs> that one. no, it's more of a if you're gonna play jazz, get ready for flat keys <laughs> type of thing. Um, so and just kind of like push them into that, uh, doing that exact thing. It's like okay, I, this week we're gonna do it in the most standard root position chords. Next week we're gonna do it all in versions. Next week I want you to take that uh, same same idea, but I want you to play all the chords as close as you can into the positions on the guitars. I don't care what inversion it is, but you only have three frets to play every single one of the chords in the, the song. And I want you to play it in time, you know, with it. Okay, take the melody, 
played an octave up, played an octave below, you know, find all the spots on the guitar where you can play the melody and expect to hear the head in those positions. You know, we're going to take four repeats because that's how many times it'll show up. Do it. Uh, and then work on our arpeggiation over that. And, and I'm basically diagramming out what I would do for a semester of pushing somebody into intro, into improvisation of jazz, and just have them do th that as much as possible. You know, okay, now we're going to do this chord inversions on the top three strings, and that's it. So let's talk about what notes you have to ditch in order to get a seventh chord with just three strings uh, on there, and why it's important and why it's not. Uh, and it, oh, we're kind of getting a little bit off our topic. So with the, the the culmination of the prepping for a gig for you is clearly it's re re self rehearsal then band rehearsal getting all the equipment checked up everything into new strings you know check all the signal paths all that other wonderful s stuff and then day of the gig what's your thing well i work all the time so usually it's throw everything in the car and then drive to the gig after work um now, and so because of the way I set things up, and unfortunately in this in this particular gig, you know, it's not just plugging into an amp and then I'm good. So there's a lot of like resetting it up, bringing extra cables, all those kind of things, and then making sure I have enough power, like bringing extra power strips, even when you think that they're there, because um, they're not always there, bringing extra cables, hooking everything up, Kind of hoping that it works. <laughs> it doesn't always work the first time you plug stuff in. Um, and then just kind of like setting up the sound on the stage, trying to get a feel for it. Um, I also find like I really do play better, at least in my head, when I can warm up for a while. Um, and a lot of like warming up with electric instruments, I think, it's not just how your fingers um, move. It's not like just getting your hand warmed up. It's like the feel of the amp. Yeah. You know, like trying to get the feel for it. What does it sound like in the room? What happens when those notes bounce off the walls and whatever? Um, and just getting that that sort of thing happening. And... Yeah, but ideally that would be like two hours, but it never works out that way. <laughs> yeah, if only. Luckily, if it's a couple minutes, usually. Um, actually, that's not totally true. It depends if it's my gig or not. Like if it's like Night Terrors, there's no other bands or anything, so it's just us tomorrow night. Um, and really, it's up to me how early I get there in a sense, um, and give myself enough time to sort of warm up. And then, uh, depending like some like for this group paul and i will usually try to run some of the harder parts before the the curtain call um, <clears throat> and yeah i guess that's mostly it i think and try yeah. to stay awake <laughs> <laughs> well the nice thing is is you got those amps behind you keeping you awake so that that and the drum set if you can fall asleep there that's pretty impressive. <laughs> yeah i find you know it's funny i I was never the overly loud guitar player. Um, in fact, a lot of times people are like, "Turn, you can turn up. Um, I'm not <clears> sure why. But more and more, I'm happy to go louder and louder. <laughs> so, oh, yeah. Dude, that, that, that's part of the fun with that. 
You know, we don't play. Especially like better gear. You know, I was like this red plate amp, which I took to rehearse. There's the great thing about these amps is they're just super dynamic. Even when you just crush it with distortion, um, it can get quiet um, without doing anything but just picking lighter. Um, it's not going to come through the video here, but there's a section in one of the songs we do where, um, it's, it's like a, yeah, this kind of thing, but it's, it's, um, like it, it gets louder, but it's really distorted. So every time we've done this song before in the past, before I had this amp, um, Paul would always be like, can you get quieter there? (laughs) What happens when you put distortion on amps is they get very compressed. Yeah. No matter how quiet I would like pick, it just didn't change the volume really at all. And then, uh, so it's like, well, you got to try to like do it with your volume knob or something, you know, volume knob or do it with a volume pedal. And it like, depending on how everything, everything, everything set up that could lead to all kinds of weird issues. Um, because it's sort of tricky to get the volume pedal just right too. And then trying to do this while you're trying to play this hard song and it like, and it immediately goes to this, uh, kind of thing. Um, so it's like, you got to try to get the volume up in time and time it up. But with the, with this amp, I could do it. Like I was just, I was like so happy at rehearsal. I was just. Even when it's, if you crank the distortion on it and just have it like screaming at you, you can get so quiet, like just like, you can't barely hear, hear you know, anything. If you can work those into that circuit wise to get it that sensitive to your. Uh, good- some, some people hate it because it's, it tells you everything. You know, it's like it tells you, <laughs> tells you when you're screwing around and like if you, if you thought you played everything even, but you really don't. Um, mm-hmm. but I love no. it. Like it's so expressive, you know, it's like you really can. Oh, and I think that's a great thing about it. I think that's what, like what makes it, it what it's it like, is. It's like a real guitar. Like, uh, exactly. like when you play exactly. like a great acoustic guitar and you dig into it, it does something. And when you don't dig into it, it does something. Yeah. Um, we get used to an electric, like everybody wants it to be the same volume. I like, I hate compressors in general. <laughs> and, uh, I would say the compression on electric guitars is generally used all the time. Like all the time. And that was like a special effect, a thing, but like to do like the country whatever thing. Yeah, I I get it. It's a, it's a certain sound. That's fine, but to just like leave it on all the time or whatever, like guitar is already like not dynamic enough. And when you when I listen to other instruments, you know, just the way like a sax player phrases in jazz. You know, it can be like very like, yeah, yeah. You know, like and they and it's, it's always going up and down and the, the loudness and the quietness, um, and even like notes stick out more than other notes and stuff. That's part of like the the music. That's part of like, what is supposed to happen. And then guitar, you hear it, and it's like all the same level or something. It drives me crazy. And even when you don't do it, even when people sort of like accent notes. If they have too much compression on, you really don't notice it. You can hear like a different timbre a little bit, but like that's all you get. You get like this little like. That's uh, the thing that amazes me about Julian Lage. Just like sure. guys, dynamic control is, oh, is 
yeah. freaking ridiculous. I mean, his electric guitar study, there's a video, of, I forget which one it was. It's not the one that, uh, that is the one, he doesn't play it on acoustic guitar, but it's just him up on stage in New York with his telly and amp. Yeah. And it was like, the voice control with just a pick was just like, screw this, I quit. You know, like, one of the few guys that I watch play that makes me go, oh my God, that's just crazy. You yeah, know, but that's why I was so excited about this K-Line guitar. Yeah. It just happens to be here. If I could do this. Um, because it's it's so dynamic, like because of just all the things that go into this guitar, like it's pretty, it's, it's like 10 wow. times louder than this guitar. Yeah. I'm gonna say that even like <laughs> acoustically, like that's it's like much much louder, um, and that with that amp, I feel like there's something that can happen there. Yep. I, I always try to put lots of dynamics in the stuff I do, but it doesn't always. Um, I feel like it doesn't come out as much as I think it will. <laughs> it's like once you've. Uh, once you go through your pickups and then into an amp and then through a microphone and into your DAW and then the DAW Mac makes the, you know, mixes the track down and it gets compressed and then it goes to your phone or whatever. And like by the time all that stuff happens, it's like, gosh, it's like all the dynamics and everything are just completely gone. That and yeah, that's that's like there's a meme where it, it has like you know, you know, ten thousand dollar or you know, five thousand dollar guitar, five thousand dollar amp, ten thousand dollar microphone, million dollar mixing board, you know, small penny speakers on on a, uh, you know, it's like really when that that kind of ties in with what we were talking about last week about getting a good set of headphones and good stereos it's like the things that you don't see anymore everybody's like oh just listen to this song on my phone which there's something to be said with that but that's not hearing it you know you you gotta you invest in good headphones and a good amp which totally made a difference with these night and day um you know like i was the the high five minutes when i don't it's like they're plugged into the interface for now but um when I plug them through the amp, it's like, whoa, the, the bass just, there it is, you know, because it, it, they're very trebly and very clear, which is great. And I was super disappointed with the bass end of it. It's like, where'd the bass go? Because my eye signs, the Odyssey ones, are really, really full. It's, it's awesome. So We're, you know, uh, I, we're uh, headphone nerds. Oh, yeah. It's one of those things, those can of worms that I that oh, that man, I. When you get some good headphones, it really makes a big difference. Yeah, and then I start preaching the gospel of good headphones all over the place, and it's like I, I've had five, I think five people. Wait, you, Kevin, uh, and a student of mine. I had three, three people that after I got them are like, you got to get them, and everybody bought them, and they're like. I had no idea. And I'm like, yeah, that's that's why I'm doing it. It's like you don't know what you're missing. It's crazy. It's surreal. Um, but and it, it, again, let's try and st- I'm going to try and stick on topic for a little bit here. So basically, that kind of like sums it up. And then you have your load in and you do the gig and you know, put your bar tab, cry a little bit and go home. So <laughs> I really, it's, uh, it's always funny to me ending a show because it's like... The audiences don't hear what you hear. Oh, sure. Like, like, when I'm hearing it, like, I hear something totally different than what the casual listener to. Uh, do. And even a serious listener, we're just listening to different things. And we're, it definitely shows that we're our own worst critics. 
Yeah. All the time. Oh, man. Okay. That reminds That's me awesome. of this, uh, there was this camp I taught at in upstate New York, uh, FEMU uh, camp, which is a pretty interesting place. We'll have to talk about sometime. Yeah. <laughs> um, anyway, there, there was, it's, it's really like a big, like almost like a Broadway prep place. Um, a lot of like mm-hmm. actors and like people that are famous now went, were there. Um, and, and there was a, like a rock band thing. And then there was orchestras and all kinds of stuff. Anyway, we did this, I was only 19. We did this like faculty showcase. So I was teaching there and I remember there was this girl, she played violin, really good violinist. And she did like a piece before me, you know, and it sounded great. And then I was after, and I I had written this really crazy guitar piece. Um, there's a solo guitar thing with like octave thing and like this crazy tapping stuff or whatever. Um, you know, and of course I thought I was horrible, but it's, it was like a crowd pleaser kind of like a little bit showy off thing that I'd come up with. Um, I remember she, she, she's like, you sounded great. Like that was awesome. She was she's like, I sounded so horrible. And I'm just thinking like, wait, you sounded like you played like something legit and it sounded great. Like, it was wonderful, you know, and she, and I'm like, I made, I know how many mistakes I made. I remember just thinking like, I yeah. picked up the piece a million times, you know? That's exactly the musician mindset. I yeah, know. it's kind of funny. Like, that's always stuck with me. Yeah. 10,000 notes and 9,999 will go great. And we'll think about that one. Oh, yeah. You know, it's like, what the hell did I do in that one damn note? Why did I shake that? Hmm. Like, that's literally what's going through my head generally, uh, like, after a gig. If, uh, like, not all the time, but I'm definitely analyzing what I did. It's yeah. like, it's, okay, that went good. That didn't go good. That's that. It's, uh, it's like, when I'm constantly thinking about guitar. Like, when I'm driving, so, so I remember that Steve was telling me, he's like, oh, yeah, when I was driving home the other day, I refingered a piece in my head. And, uh, I do it all the time, yeah. And nowadays, it's like, that's what I do. It's like, I'm driving, I'm like, oh, yeah, that, that should work. And get home and write it down or try it out. Um, sure. It's just, it beca- it's so surreal to be on that side of the fence with it. To go from, like, you know, the amateur level of thinking about it to being that's pretty much all I hear in my head and think about dynamically is guitar. And the, but you have to be if you're, if you're gonna take music seriously and you're not doing that you're not taking it seriously to an extent you know just talking about those people that want to like break into any type of uh, professional playing or anything it's like you got to live it that's it you know and uh, yeah I mean it's kind of not a choice I think too right you don't really think about it you just, no I don't I don't you think know, you, you don't think like oh I have to think about this you just think about it. Yeah, I just think about like how long can I keep going before I my responsibilities absolutely have to be addressed. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that, that that's basically it. It's like just watching the clock. Um, so so I think you were leading up as we're like running to time here. Probably um, there's that that sort of um, you prep for a gig. You you promote the gig too, right? There's a lot of yeah. You know, these days you gotta trying to do your best sort of promoting it. So you put a level of into that. Maybe you create flyers, you create banners and you share with people and you ask them to come or create Facebook invites, whatever it is that you do, you do the show. It it could be good or bad. Um, Let's just say it was a pretty good show. 
and you and you played well enough and you generally feel okay about it but then there's that like you've put so much into it and you get this like i don't know about you but like sometimes it's just it's like a really big down oh yeah like, totally so you you've totally. got real they've got the like sort of high from playing the gig um which is so much fun right mm-hmm. um and now it's over like yeah. it's just over like all this stuff you work towards all these things you work worked on and even when you're really busy even when you have you know three or four gigs a week or whatever you put all this energy into that gig and then you've got to like i don't, I don't think people see it all the time like just how far you go down. Oh yeah, man. Totally. Usually that night you're, you're probably okay. You kind of have that like after gig high sort of thing happening. Um, unless you played really bad and then you're just really yeah, bad. Let's put an asterisk there. That generally goes, that high goes with the completely. Uh, yeah, if you play mediocre or better to yourself, yeah. then you can have that kind of like high, but then it's like the next morning you wake up and you just feel horrible. Yeah, you gotta sort of like pump yourself up again to do it again. Mm-hmm. Um, this is Stravinsky quote that I love. It's like, well, how, how do you write? Like, how do, what's your inspiration? He's like, I find inspir- I find that inspiration shows up at nine o'clock every morning. Mm-hmm. And it, you know, because that's what he would do. That's his writing. That's at least uh, during that time period, he was like, that's when he would sit down and write. Nine o'clock. That's it. Consistent. Um, and that's that's I think that's where the discipline level comes in because if you let your emotions dictate how you practice, you're you're not going to go anywhere. Like you're going to be too too unstable to make forward progress. It just has to be a thing that you do, and that's just something that Pierre said when we were when I was out there. And I, I mean, I, it was obviously profound enough to keep with me for twenty years. But he's just like, you just do it. Like you fake it till it becomes fun again and it gets there. He's like, you think that when I'm doing a hundred show tour that I absolutely love walking out on the stage. And this is me putting words in his mouth a little bit, but he's like, you think I love walking out on the stage every single time being away from my family in another town, you know, like, great, I get to do another show. You know, he's like, the first couple are great. You know, it's exciting. It's new and it's fresh, but you eventually miss your own bed and having your own type of circle. And then you get to a point where it's like, okay, I got to do this again. Here we go. You know, and he's like, but you put, you find that if you put the fake smile on, it doesn't stay fake for long. He's like, sometimes it's like the first 10 notes, first, sometimes it takes a couple of songs, but then all of a sudden you get into that zone again and and you're doing it. But that's where the the discipline aspect of the musical art or any art in general comes into play. Because I, I had a friend of mine that's a very, very prolific artist. That's all that he does. He supports his family painting and that's it. And he's like, every day I'm in my studio from nine to five. He's like, that's it. I don't take touch the phone. I don't care what's going on. That's what I do. Yeah, and, and that's it's like when I'm charging that much money for a painting, it also works well to motivate me because I know that, that you know, it, especially if somebody's commissioned something, it's like ching, okay, there's my motivation to get it done. Uh, but at the same time, you know, like, and, and that's maybe that's another subject. It's like if you're getting paid to do something, how do you stay inspired if you don't necessarily like it? <laughs> because you're not gonna like everything you get paid to do. No. That does. Guarantee. So we'll save that Pandora's box for another time. Yeah, that's, that's good. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a good one. And I think we, let's wrap. I think we're good with wrapping things up yeah. right about. Here. 
Yeah, I think that we covered it pretty well. So there's a there's your input into the world of night terrors and the mirth guitar maniac here, uh, getting ready for the gig and what goes into that, how much work goes behind the scenes and the, the rehearsal and so on. You know. Yeah, that's fun. Good luck. So Thanks. where where do we see the live stream and everything else for yeah, anybody? Like, presuming this comes out in time and somebody listens this far, um, it's at the Bop Stop in Cleveland. Um, so from their Facebook page, I think, or you can go to the Bob Stop's website. So I, I think if you look up Bob Stop on Google, it'll pop up Bob Stop Cleveland. Um, I don't think there's any other Bob Stops, but no. Nope. Anyway, um, as long as it's Here's in Cleveland. Here's the top search result. Oh, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> My phone found it. Yeah. Um, so you go there, and then there should be links for how you can watch it. So I think it's eight o'clock Eastern Standard Time, America time. Um, tomorrow and we're only playing for about an hour and 15 minutes or so okay um, so it's live stream and you can donate if you want and all those kind of things so, sweet 8 15 great great venue the cameras and stuff will look good the video production and the set that like these places are getting really good at this stuff it'll it'll sound good it'll look good um so it's pretty cool and we'll you know have video to show share later yeah that would be awesome we can tell Guaranteed to see crazy guitar stuff <laughs> and lots and lots of gongs. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. It's going to be a great show. So I hope it's a great show. I'm rooting for you. Oh, yeah. you know, I'm trying to think it's like, no, I'm, I'm teaching. <laughs> so that's, that, that's another subject is like when you're a musician and you're working in the musical field, how do you see other people's shows? Yes. Well, and, with this one, right? It'll like 10 minutes after it shows, it'll be available to watch anytime. So, yeah. Yep. So that's a good thing with that. So sure. cool. I hate having, I hate saying like, Oh, I had a teach or, Oh, I have a gig. I mean, it's good to have those problems, but it's like, I do want to see other shows. <laughs> it's Unfortunately, I'm, I'm, it's a, the working musician conundrum. Oh, yeah. All right. Awesome. Cool. Ciao everyone. <laughs>